All right. Are you glad you're here today? There's going to be some people coming in in about 30 minutes, ready for this service. But you remembered, you made it. And uh, are you awake? You, you look pretty awake. Yeah. I'm excited about what God has for me to share with you today. We're in the second sermon in this series, More Than a Name. We're encountering the real Jesus. And it's so important to understand who he really was because after these 2,000 years have passed, sometimes we get a lot of other things down through those, you know, many years that we've kind of added in or thought about or someone said one time or let's get back to the real Jesus. Some people have a hard time wondering if the Bible's true. Millions of us have found that God's word and the words of Jesus are, are true and, and accurate and powerful. I'm not as concerned about worrying about that because I found that to be true, but I think that even in our American religion, Christianity, we've added some things, we've watered down some things, and when we see this real Jesus, it astounds us. You see, we've got some misunderstandings, and those misunderstandings can be deadly to your faith. I was reading this week about Joseph Scriven. He was born in 1819. He was an Irish poet, a Christian. After receiving his university degree from Trinity College in London, he was engaged. He had a a plan to settle down and have this amazing uh, life. And his fiancée was tragically drowned the night before their wedding in an accident. And it kind of threw him off. And so he moved from Ireland to Canada. And when he got to Canada... He was trying to live for God and walk with God and he got engaged again uh, to this uh, amazing girl, Eliza Rice, and she was a good Christian. They were doing ministry together and she got pneumonia. Of course, back in that day, what could you do for it? And she ended up dying, drowning if, in a sense with that pneumonia. And it just had really thrown him off, but he stepped into his faith even harder he, he took a vow of poverty at one point and he uh, just began to try to help the destitute and those around him, the, the, the people that didn't have any resources. He was always, and he gave away everything that he had to all of them. And then he found out his mother was sick and he didn't have any money because of his vow of poverty to go back to Ireland to care for her. And it was at this point when he finally said, God, that's enough. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And he turned his back on God and he walked away. My question this morning in the message, if you see the title there, it's where do you go when God fails you? And I know that's probably going to intrigue you a little bit. Does God fail you? Well, let's look and see what the Bible actually says. And it might change our whole perspective on things, but let's take a look. So pull out your sermon notes, if you will, and let's look. Harris County is filled with tens of thousands of people who once said they believed. They used to fill the churches, but now they're not going to church anymore. They've turned their backs on God. They said, um, if you ask them why, they would say, because God failed me, because God failed me. One guy said to me, your Jesus didn't work. Well, the sixth chapter of John's gospel begins with 15,000 people following Jesus. 
Now, he's got 15,000 people that just anywhere he goes, they follow him. A lot of people don't realize that those crowds had built up like that. The sixth chapter of John starts with 15,000. It ends with only 11 still following him. That's quite a fall off, isn't it? Why? They felt like God didn't fulfill his end of their deal that they had made with God. So let's take a look at it and let's see what actually happened. And I think it's gonna astound you. When we see the real Jesus here, it, it, it's, gonna, it's gonna blow your mind. Let's take a look. This, the day before, in the early part of this chapter, Jesus had just fed 5,000 men, besides the women and children, 20,000 people altogether, scholars say, with the five loaves and the two fish. You remember the little boy with the five loaves and the two fish, and Jesus kept dividing them out and dividing them out. We come to verse 30, 31. Let me just read it to you. It's a story, so let me just read it, and I'll explain it as we go along, okay? So in verse 30, the crowd replied, show us a miracle so we can see it, and then we'll believe in you. And it seems the most idiotic thing to say at all because he had just done that miracle. Uh, He just fed 20,000 people. But then they go on. Moses took care of our ancestors who were fed by the miracle of manna every day in the desert. Just like the scripture says, he fed them with bread from heaven. What sign do you perform for us? Okay, so now we're getting to their real objective, manna. Do you remember what the manna was? Maybe you've never heard of it before, but when the Israelites were trying to go, they left Egypt, they're trying to go to the promised land. Remember 40 years in the desert. There's no food in the desert. They would have all starved to death, two million of them, wandering around the desert in big circles for 40 years because they disobeyed God. Well, God still loved them and so he provided this stuff that would come on the ground every morning. It looked like frost at first, but then it would turn into this stuff that you could, you know, kind of like flour or, or, or something that you, you could actually eat it right off the ground if you wanted to or you could make it into little cakes. It tasted probably like a Popeye's honey biscuit, okay? <laughs> when, when you got done. Some of you just got really hungry right there. But so for, for 40 years, every morning, six days a week, not on the Sabbath day, but every other day, there was this stuff on the ground. And, and, and so these people are basically saying, Jesus, I mean, that was really cool yesterday what you did. Um, but, you know, Moses, I mean, you fed 20,000 people. That was pretty cool. But Moses fed millions of people every day for 40 years. How about that? If you'll do that, we'll believe in you. And basically, whoever's leading the crowd and speaking up, their spokesperson is pretty smart. I mean, if Jesus does this, this is going to be a perpetual, you know, food and a life of leisure and a food supply. So they're kind of manipulating Jesus for their own purposes. And um, they're looking at Jesus as the one who's going to solve their earthly dilemmas, who's going to fix their life, who's going to fix their business, who's going to cause them to make more money who's gonna cause them to be more comfortable, cause them to be more satisfied. And Jesus' answer in this chapter to them makes a lie out of much of the American gospel that 
That's basically why we want to come to Jesus, because he's going to fix our life. Look what Jesus says. I'll just read it to you, and if you've got it there in your Bible, but listen, because it's a story, so you don't really have to have the words anywhere except just listen. The truth is, Jesus said, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. It's my Father who offers bread that comes as a dramatic sign from heaven. The bread of God is the one who came out of heaven to give his life to feed the world. Then please, sir, give us this bread every day, they replied. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Come every day to me and you will never be hungry. Believe in me and you will never be thirsty. For the longing of my Father is that everyone who embraces the Son and believes in him will experience eternal life and I will raise them up in the last day. So here's basically what Jesus is saying. Coming to Christ so he will fix your earthly condition equals disillusionment. Your Jesus didn't work. My husband still left. My, my son's still in the hospital. I still have this terminal illness. I still don't have a job. Your Jesus didn't work. F.F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, said, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. You say, well, wait a minute, Mark. Doesn't Jesus care about my health, my finances, my marriage? Of course. And his principles in his word, they always work. We just got through with the big marriage conference. And so many of you, you saw huge life change happen. Starting to put those principles into play. But his plan, his agenda for you, what the scripture's trying to say is so much bigger. C.S. Lewis kind of shares it like this in his book, The Problem of Pain. Let me just read it to you. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. I knew if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became so unbearable, I couldn't stand it. And the reason I didn't go was this. I had no doubt that she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. You see, God, he has a bigger agenda than our personal healing even, than our comfort. So why, let me ask you personally, why do you seek him for healing, to pay the bills, in hopes of finding a nice spouse? Listen to what happens next. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread of life who came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he say, I have come out of heaven? Now put yourself in their place, okay? Imagine that this guy that you've known and, and, and you've seen grow up all of a sudden says, I'm God. You're going to be like a little skeptical, aren't you? I, I remember a few years back, you know, at Woodlands Church where my brother carries the pastor, they have these extravagant Easters. They have amazing 
shows at Easter, like 30 services. I don't even know how he does all that. I mean, it's crazy, you know, but it's amazing. Well, a few years back, they had a chair up on the stage for Jesus. It's one of the kind of the, the talking about Jesus' presence. But in about the third service in, someone came up out of the audience, a man came up and sat in the chair that was reserved for Jesus. And Carrie said to him, excuse me, sir, this is a chair for Jesus. He said, I am Jesus. Ended up, he, you know, had some mental issues and some things going on. Um, but Carrie said that security came in to get Jesus, kind of nonchal. I mean, he tried to be cool about it, right? Um, he said, I'm Jesus, and security's carrying him out. Everybody thought it was part of the sermon. They could not figure out. That made no sense at all, you know? But Carrie, he said to me, he's on the phone, and he said, Mark, I just hope that really wasn't Jesus. Because <laughs> security carried Jesus out. We've got a restraining order against Jesus. He can't come within 500 feet of the building. I hope that wasn't Jesus. You know, and, and we were laughing about it. But you can, it's kind of the same thing here. It's like you look at that and you go like, I'm God. And they're going like, mm, we're not too sure about that, right? He goes on, I speak to you living truth. Unite your heart to me and believe and you will experience eternal life. I am the true bread of life. Yes, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. Standing here before you is the true bread that comes out of heaven. When you eat this bread, you will never die. I alone am this living bread. And I come to you from heaven. Eat this bread and you will live forever. The living bread I give you is my body, which I will offer as a sacrifice so that all may live. These words of Jesus sparked an angry outburst among the Jews. They protested saying, does this man expect us to eat his body? Jesus heard him. So he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Eternal life comes to the one who eats my body and drinks my blood and I will raise him up on the last day for my body is real food. My blood is real drink. The one who eats my body and drinks my blood lives in me. I live in him. The father of life sent me. He's my life. In the same way, the one who feeds upon me, I will become his life. I am not like the bread your ancestors ate and later died. I am the living bread that comes from heaven. Eat this bread and you will live forever. I want you to think about that. Imagine you're there. Is that confusing? What is he talking about? Uh, that's, I, why eat? Why is he using eat? Well, we know that later he says he's talking in a spiritual sense, but right now they're just looking at him, just staring at him. Everybody's got their jaws dropped open. Think about it. Eating, it's necessary if I'm going to get any benefit out of the food. You can look at a feast and you can say, I love food. You can philosophize about the food, but until you eat the food, it doesn't become part of you. And people do that all the time. I, God is so amazing. God is this. God, but until you actually partake, right? Another thing about eating, write this down. 
what you eat and drink becomes who you are. Whatever you eat. I mean, it's kind of like the guy who said, the doctor told me to watch my stomach, so I'm trying to get it out there, you know, so I can see it. I don't think that's what the doctor meant. It's not cellulite that you see there. That's that French fry you ate the other day, right? What you eat, it, it, it becomes you. Whatever you put in, whatever you put in to you becomes you. And Christ might be presented to me in all of his glory. I might even respect his perfect life. I might admire his wonderful person. I might be touched by his unselfish love or even cry real tears when I watch the passion of the Christ. But it's only when I take him in to me and he dwells in me, we become this whole new creation. And there's one more thing about eating. It's personal. Eating is personal. Imagine I'm sitting at my office and I'm really busy that day. So I call my wife and I say, Laura, I can't come home for lunch. Can you eat an extra sandwich for me? Is that going to work? No. There's no such thing as eating by proxy. And, and so again, you see that he's trying to explain something to them. But here's what's so interesting about this. It seems like it would have only taken a little while to say, let me explain this really clearly to you. You're getting all confused and all caught up. I'm trying to give you spiritual insight and think in the spirit realm when I say this. But he didn't, he never stops and says anything. He doesn't clear it up. He he, he doesn't say, I'm not talking about eating my physical flesh. He, He doesn't clarify any statement that he made. He just hammers it home more, all the harder. Verse 59, Jesus preached this sermon in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? It's interesting, the word difficult in the original language. I'll call your attention to it. It's scleros, hard. This is hard, but we get sclerosis from it. This is a statement that it's hardening me against you. God, I mean, it's like it hardens and it doesn't perform its function. That's what sclerosis is. This is a sclerosis, a sclerotic statement. This is a statement that is causing me to feel like it's, you know, uh, your words aren't that difficult to understand, but they're hard to tolerate, Jesus. They're hard to absorb. They're hard to hear. They're they're, They're harsh to my soft sensibilities. Jesus conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Word stumble again in the original language. It's the best we can do in English, but it's the word, does this cause you a, are you a, is this a scandalon for you is what Jesus said. Scandalon was the, the part of a trap for an animal that was the sharpened stick that when the animal got in the trap, the stick would go through their heart, kill them. Is this like a sticking point? Is this like, is this something that's gonna like pierce you. The Bible says that the cross was a scandalon to the Jews. I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to accept that. I'm not going to believe that. He goes on and he does explain a little bit. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And then he says something really interesting. The Bible does. It says, because Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. Did you know that? From the beginning. 
And so from that time on, many of the disciples turned their backs on Jesus and refused to be associated with him. Write this down. No longer willing to walk alongside Jesus. No longer committed to him and his mission. At the first shadow of misunderstanding, they left him. They won't walk alongside him anymore. They're not committed to him. At that first shadow of misunderstanding, they left him. Does that sound familiar? Jesus, very human Jesus, as well as God. Jesus said to his 12, the 12 disciples, the closest ones, and you, do you also want to leave? You're sensing a a, a real brokenhearted Jesus here. And I know that you can see in verses like this that he suffered real pain. I think that one of the deepest pains is when someone that you've poured your life into that you've thought was a friend and that you thought had your back would turn their back on you. That's one of the deepest pains I've ever felt in my life when something like that happens. This is what Jesus had times 15,000 in this moment. Think about that. And it's, it's, you know, sometimes we get on Peter's case, but Oh, Peter here, man, he comes through. He he comes through in an amazing way. There's a sweetness about him here. Jesus says, you don't want to go away too, do you? See this very human reaction. Simon Peter, verse 68, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Basically what Peter says is, in effect, Lord, don't think we haven't thought about it. I mean, you're not easy to live with. You embarrass us. You frighten us. We, we see and hear you do things that simply blow our minds and our, our worldview. You offend people that we think are important. But Lord, we've never found anyone who speaks words like you speak because They explain us. They explain purpose to us. We begin to understand the point of everything when we hear you. And and secondly, Lord, we've seen who you are. We've seen who you are. We've believed, but now we've come to know. We know it. We know it that you are the Holy One of God. So where are we going to go? Where would we go? Yeah, we don't get it. We have no clue what you were just talking about, just like the rest of them. And it sounds a little like cannibalism or something, you know. But we know it's just a misunderstanding. We don't understand. There's something here we don't understand. And this is the first time we see like a real believer in this whole chapter. It takes us to like verse 68. This is a long chapter. The best definition of a real believer is someone who cannot quit. Someone who cannot quit Jesus. Oh, you might get away for a little while, but you're not gonna be able to stay away. I talked to a guy who said to me, I just can't do it. I, I, I can't continue to be a Christian. It's too hard. I blow it all the time. I, I'm gonna hang it up. I'm gonna hang it up. I'm just gonna quit. I looked at him and I said, I think that's a good idea. Why don't you just hang it up? And he looked startled at me for a minute. And then he said, you know I can't do that. And I said, I know. That's why I was giving you a hard time. 
because you, I know you. You're a believer. You're a true believer. You can't quit. Jesus gives us all, so much insight into how this journey of faith works in this chapter. He says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That word draw is a strong word. It's like being in a riptide. And and maybe you don't even know it, but you're trying to swim back towards shore, but you're in a riptide and it keeps pulling you out to the deeps, pulling you out to where God is. And maybe you don't even sense it, but finally you tire and he pulls you on in. That's the point. That's what he's saying here, that, that this salvation thing is really all from God. You say, well, that puts a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, what, what about our part? Well, our part is really quite small. So all these people that think you've got to work your way to God, your good outweighs your bad, the Bible doesn't teach any of that. It says God pulls you. See, if you look about Jesus talking about, he says we're sheep, he's the shepherd. He never says that the, the sheep are looking, are searching, are seeking the shepherd, ever. It's always the shepherd seeking the sheep. He's the one who seeks and saves the ones who are lost. And yet, there's something for us. We just believe. We step in as he pulls us and he pulls us and he pulls us. There's so much about this I can't comprehend because it's so much from God. Our little pea brains can't quite get it. And some things God doesn't explain to us. He just said, this is how it is. Well, how do I know if the Father's drawing me? Do you long for him? Do you, do you want to know Jesus better? Even in the circumstances of life that you don't understand, is it something about it that keeps kind of turning you around, pulling you back? That's a, a lot of what we're talking about here. It gives me a lot of encouragement because I'm praying for several people right now And circumstances look like nothing's happening, but I know they're already caught in God's riptide. And God's pulling them and pulling them. And he's not going to stop. He's faithful. He's going to pull them all the way in. Are you disillusioned with God this morning? See, our understanding of God is shaped by one of two points of view, either ours or his. Let me just read you these last verses and it'll shock you just like it shocked them. Then Jesus shocked them with these words. I have handpicked you to be my 12, knowing that one of you is the devil. Jesus was referring to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, for he knew that Judas, one of his chosen disciples, was getting ready to betray him. See, Peter was wrong about one thing. He said, where would we go, the 12 of us? Where would we go? And Jesus said, no, not the 12 of you, 11 of you. Because one of you is a devil. One of you has made up his mind in this moment, just like the rest of the crowd. You know what? I'm done with this guy. I don't understand him. I thought we were moving toward kingship. In fact, yesterday when he fed all those people, they were going to make him king by force and he got away from them. That was the day. That was the point. He should have been king right now. We could take on the Romans with his power. We, we, could, we could rule the world. That's what I signed up for. I signed up to be at his right hand when he's ruling in, in Rome. And, and what does he do? I don't even understand what this is today. I'm done with him. Forget this guy. That was Judas. It's his moment. It solidifies him turning against God. 
The most natural question in the world to me at this moment would be, is the devil winning? I mean, 15,000 people now down to 11. Is the slanderer, the accuser, the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers, is he winning? It looks like he's winning, but the answer in this chapter is he's not winning. Jesus has him right where he wants him. I mean, he's hooked him and he's pulled him right into the middle of the 12 to do his bidding that's gonna mean the salvation of the world. And the devil doesn't even know it yet. You see, there's something that we have to understand. Here's the point. You can look at this passage or you can look at your life and you can only see problems or see only problems. Or you can read it and you can see kind of like a sanctuary of God's sovereignty that God always knows what he's doing all the time. And he has a plan and he's working it out. And your little finite mind is not going to get it. And sometimes he's not gonna explain it. Just like he didn't explain this chapter because he knows that's not how you come to him by figuring out everything that he said. You come because the father's drawing you and nothing's gonna stop that. It's not his job to explain it all to you. You won't be able to get away. Yes, there's a devil in the ranks, but I put him there, God says. I chose him, he'll do my bidding. So what are you looking at this morning? Circumstances or sovereignty? Write that down. Our circumstances or his sovereignty? Listen to what Jesus said about his death on the cross even. He's so sovereign. No one kills me. I die only because I choose to die. I have power to die. I have power to live again. This is what the Father has told me. This forever changed Peter's perspective. In fact, Peter in his little letters, first and second Peter in the Bible, he talks about all the time about how hard life is and how difficult it is, but how God knows what he's doing all the way through it. One verse I thought was really interesting. First Peter 4, 19, he says this, and if it's true that we're living in a time of judgment, then those who suffer according to God's will can only commit their souls to their faithful creator and go on doing all the good they can. If we're living in a time of judgment, don't you think that it's gonna affect us as believers too? Is America starting to come under God's judgment? Well, I don't know, let's look at our political leaders. When you look both sides of the aisle, I don't care where you look. Let's look at what seems to be going on. Why does the morality seem to be, why is our, all of our family, the, the fabric of society starting to fray? Something's going on. Do you think that we're not gonna feel it too? You are. If we're living in a time of judgment, are we gonna escape judgment? What do we do? We keep on trusting God's heart for us even in the midst of this giant plan that's working out, that's very personal, that comes all the way down to us too. What about Joseph Scriven? Shook his fist at God and turned away. Seemed like with good reason, right? We couldn't stay away. He came back, tears streaming down his face, knelt beside his bed, and he said, God, where else would I go? 
I have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. And he penned these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised. Thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer.